Welcome to the first of a three-part Who's Round. I'll try to make sure the cliffhanger to this episode makes sense. Well, uh, we're at the Royal Exchange Theatre, which is why it might be echoey, but my subject did ask for us to do a sort of site-specific interview <laughs> that wasn't in somebody's lounge. Uh, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. I'm Ian Briggs, and once upon a time, I had something to do with Doctor Who. I wrote Dragonfire and I wrote The Curse of Fenric in the Sylvester McCoy era. Well, we'll get on to that, but I'm fascinated by the fact that this is one of the very few uh, uh, Who's where the subject has come to me uh, <laughs> after a, a, a sort of probing email. And also, you, you, you were interested in doing an interview that wasn't... Uh, that, that had a different sound ambience. Mm. So I'm, I'm interested in your approach to this and why we're here now, which I'm extremely grateful for, um, but, but I'd like to get to the bottom of. It's, it's slightly self-serving on my part. Um, we're here because... Uh, well, in the first place, I kind of got a bit fed up over the years of hearing interviews which are kind of all the same. They're done in someone's living room or they're done in someone's library or something like that. And uh, I, I just I yearn to hear interviews where people are out in the wilds or they're, they're, they're somewhere. They're in a real place. Uh, and and, and you, can, you can tell that they're in a real place. Um, and we're here in Manchester, and the reason why I've come, I, I have travelled to Manchester to you, um, is because a long, long time ago I was a student in Manchester. I was a drama student here in Manchester, and I haven't been back in decades, literally decades. And I've kept promising myself that I would come back and just see what Manchester was like. I would quite like to go back down to the drama department uh, and and see if there's, if there's still an, an old German church there that we used to use as our <laughs> studio, um, and just see what Manchester is, is like now, because I haven't been here for a long, long time. Well, take me back then. So before you came to Manchester, um, you know, pre-drama student mm. days, um, what was your background and what led you to becoming that drama student who, who came to this city? What, were, you know, were, you always, were you always going to be doing something creative? I think so. I, my parents uh, were both into amateur drama. They were, they were both into amdram societies. And I used to go and see them from about the age of two or three. Um, in fact, my earliest memory is of seeing a play. I don't actually remember it as a play because you know, at the time I didn't know what a play was. I have a memory of being in this enormous great building with rows and rows of people and everyone is falling around laughing and, and I, I can barely see over the top of the, the, the seat in front of me and everyone is falling about laughing because my daddy is at the other end in bright lights and has just fallen off a chair. <laughs> My parents, kind of many years later, when I recounted this memory to them, kind of reconstructed it to a particular play in a particular church hall that my dad was in. It was a comedy, and I would have been about two or three at the time. So 
I, I've been going to theatre since you know, I was a toddler, literally. Uh, my parents used to put me to bed in the afternoon to, to sleep so that I, I could stay awake for the, the duration of a play in the evening. Um, and they would take me round the back during the interval uh, or after the play. So I still have vivid memories of, of going, you know, the, the back of church halls and that. Um, I suppose in, I was about to say where mysterious things were happening, but to me it didn't seem mysterious. There were people that I knew doing things that I didn't understand, but then at that age I didn't understand anything that grown-ups did. It was all rather bizarre. I just grew up, it was almost like I grew up in a theatrical family, even though my parents were both teachers. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I loved doing that. Uh, secondary school, they weren't terribly interested in doing drama, but then back in, in the day... Um, there was no such thing as drama A-level or anything like that. Um, I think my school would have preferred it if I'd done English at university, but I really, really, really wanted to do drama. Um, I come from Yorkshire, so Manchester wasn't too far away. Uh, I, I applied to other places, Hull and Birmingham, uh, but Manchester was the first one to give me an offer. And I'd seen round the place. Um, in fact, it's just occurred to me, that was the first time... I met Rick Mail. I wasn't even a student. I'd come for an interview in Manchester and uh, we, we were kind of given a little tour and this, this rather terrifying creature who I <laughs> later knew to be Rick Mail um, was, was terrifying but in, in an entrancing, enchanting way, uh, in a beguiling way. Um, and so... I became a drama student. I, they offered me a place. I accepted it. I came to Manchester. Well, I, and I came to, for, just for context, because the listener mm. might not know, is that I, I came to Manchester. I think maybe you know a decade after you'd been there. But I was, I, I was late seventies. Yeah, 70s. so I was, I was ninety-two. Right. And it, and it certainly, f and I hadn't realised this when I applied. It was only when I got there that it seemed like, crikey, this is the place where. Everybody goes to yeah. Rick Mail, Ben Elton, Mira yeah. Sial, yeah. Uh, all sorts of Toby people. Toby Jones, Benedict so, Cumberbatch. Uh, but, but, but actually, also Pete Tchaikovsky, who was uh, Sergeant Prozorov. Yeah. Yes. Um, funny enough, I, it's like our paths are, are destined that we will keep crossing, even to the extent of just bumping each other in, in the street. Oh, but really? I, I had no influence over the casting of him whatsoever. It wasn't until. Maybe even we went to the rehearsal rooms or something like that, or I saw the, saw the, the cast list. And that's Pete Chai. I was at university with Pete Chai. <laughs> How funny. Yeah. Well, and because Sophie was here as well, but mm. not at the same time. Because, again, yeah. I, I, I sort of looked at it as a... Well, obviously, everyone on Doctor Who met at Manchester University, yeah. but actually it was a no, different didn't. time. No, and the uh, funny thing is that... Uh, when I discovered that Sophie had been at Manchester uh, and we were talking about putting her um, costume together, the, the bomber jacket for uh, Dragonfire, um, I, I, I really wanted to get something in to do with Manchester and I had a little badge because the, um, the, this German church I was talking about, um, when I was at Manchester, the geography department wanted to get rid of it because they thought it was an eyesore. Uh, and so we had this campaigns save the Stephen Joseph studio and I had a little badge that, that said save the Stephen Joseph and I said since her bomber jacket is covered with badges can't we stick this in as well and uh, wardrobe said um, no because we, we need two identical bomber jackets and I said I've got two badges and they said 
No, you still can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right, well, let's, let's get to Doctor Who. Okay. Um, we'll do some other stuff after this, but... Um, <laughs> uh, so how did, how did you come on Doctor Who's radar? Um, I was working at the television script unit. Um, as it turns out, many of the writers of my era were, although I didn't realise this until a year or two back when uh, Andrew was interviewing us all, and I suddenly realised that so many others had also worked in the television script unit, and we weren't working there at the same time, or at least I wasn't working there at the same time as them. Um, but when I was working there, uh, my primary job was to reject scripts, um, which... I <laughs> I know, that sounds soulless, but I was very good at it. Uh, <laughs> the thing about the, the television script units in those days was that we had three grades of uh, rejection. There was no grade for acceptance. Um, the, the presumption was that we would not accept any script, that there were simply three levels of rejection. But there was this script came from Andrew, who I didn't know, Andrew Cartmel, and I thought it was a really, really, really good script. Um, and so... It was, it was going to get rejected anyway, because we rejected everything. Uh, but what we did was, if there was... We rejected scripts, but we didn't necessarily reject writers. If there was a writer who sort of showed promise in the script, the script would get rejected. That's, that's the way life is. <laughs> you write a script, it's going to get rejected. That, that's just... It's a fundamental law of the universe. <laughs> you write scripts, they get rejected. <laughs> so... Um, his script was going to get rejected, but what we did do was we would try and find ways of encouraging the writers. So I was I was taking the script round script editors uh, in the BBC, saying, "Look, I've got this really good script. We look at it because you know, I think he's a good writer." Um, and and I met him as well because another thing we did was we had little get-togethers. Um, the, the, the deputy head of the, the script unit organised these mornings, days, I can't remember what they were, where we would get a dozen writers who we were trying to encourage in and we would sort of talk about drama, we'd get people in to talk about things, whatever. Um, so I'd met Andrew. Um, I, I, I didn't manage to do anything with his script while I was there. I left um, without, without having managed to place him but then you know, 18 months two years later something like that he contacted me because he then got the job as script editor on Doctor Who um, and I think he must have asked me when, when we got to know each other at the script unit he must have asked to see some of my writing and he'd seen something that I'd done um, because he then said you know, I've just been appointed script editor on Doctor Who um, we we're trying to change kind of the, the tone, the style, whatever. Um, and I think yours is the style that we're looking for. I think you've got something to, to bring to this. Are you interested? And the really funny thing was that when I was a, a child, teenager even, I really wanted to write for Doctor Who. <laughs> and I, I wrote something for Doctor Who and I sent it off. And, it got rejected because that's a law of the universe. The, um, the right things, they get rejected. Um, and even when I came down to London, before I was working in the script unit, I'd even got a meeting um, with Eric Saywood. Um, nothing came of that. And I'd completely forgotten that I ever wanted to write for Doctor Who. 
until Andrew said, do you want to write? Are you interested in writing for Dark 2? And I suddenly thought, oh, that's a dream of mine. So I said, yeah, yeah, of course I'd love to write for Doctor Who, thank you very much if, if the opportunity is there. So that was, that was how I, I got involved in Doctor Who. We, we met through the, the script unit. But to me, Doctor Who is that impossible thing, mm. is that you can do anything and go anywhere. Mm. So how the hell do you come up with a story? OK, we, we had... Andrew said there were two rules, there were only two rules for Doctor Who. You can't blow up the TARDIS, you can't destroy the TARDIS, it has to remain intact at, at the end of your story. And please don't blow the Doctor's legs off, because that's going to cause problems for writers after you. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from that, you can do anything. And I can actually remember the, 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 the sequence I, I, I went through. Um, I came up with a story for Doctor Who, and I didn't quite get the idea that Andrew was looking for a change in style. So the story I came up with was a, a kind of a fairly traditional story. It was kind of the Doctor arrives somewhere and there are some, some rebels engaged in rebel action and the Doctor sides with the rebels and there's a rebel camp and, you know, kind of that kind of thing. It, it, was, it was a clichéd story, but I, I, I hadn't kind of hoisted on board properly that that wasn't what they were looking for. Um, so I, I kind of wrote that story and it got rejected, obviously, because that's the law of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Andrew said, no, 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 totally different, totally different. And he came up with... Um, he, he suggested something and it involved a couple of um, androids. Now, what were they called? They, they, I can't remember what they were called, but they, they, they had fancy names, and it was, it was a variation on the word android. Um, but it, essentially, they were, they, were, they were kind of a double act and very English, um, and, and very, uh, kind of very reminiscent of the Thompson twins in Tintin. Sure. Um, and I think I actually modified my, my rebel story um, to incorporate these um, and kind of wrote that uh, and the immutable law of the universe came into play. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, no, no, really, 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 think of something different. Don't think about what Doctor Who's been like in the past. Just write your own story. So I did. Uh, I, I, I wrote a completely different kind of story. Um, I think it was called The Pyramid in Space or something like that. I know the word pyramid came into it. And it was kind of the surreal end of science fiction. Uh, it, was, it was a pyramid floating through space which was um, a department store and strange advent, strange things were going on in the department store and there was this strange chap running the place called Grub and he had an obsequious assistant called Mr Spewey and there were the objects in the, in the store had kind of talking price labels and things like that but at the same time there was a, a, a creature on the loose and the, the creature, uh, the, and this, they, a, a, a treasure hunt was set up uh, because uh, Grub 
who's just after money and had little dials in his office showing his profits going up and up and up. And, it's uh, very Dickensian. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of proto-steampunk, uh, in a way. Uh, and so the, this, this adventure ensued where it turned out that this creature um, was incredibly valuable, that it was made out of gemstones and gold and valuable minerals and things like that. Um, and, and I wrote that, uh, and uh, the immutable law of the universe came into play. <laughs> uh, but this one, this one was rejected by um, Andrew. Andrew said, this is, this is good, this is a great story. Let's put it to John. Uh, and it was John who rejected it. And it came back, not so much as a rejection, but um, kind of lots of scenes rejected from it. And I remember having a meeting with Andrew where I was saying, but he's rejected everything. And Andrew was saying, no, no, he hasn't, he hasn't, trust me. And he said, and I remember his face, he said, the centre has held, the centre has held. And I said, he's crossed it all out, the centre's gone, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's nothing left. So what we did was we took, we took some of those ideas and grew a new story from them. The idea of a trading colony, the idea of um, a creature, a dangerous creature, a treasure hunt, the idea that, in a way that we didn't understand yet, the creature would turn out to be the treasure. Um, I can remember, because the thing was in those days that one story meeting would merge into someone else's story meetings and you would end up with two or even three writers in a room at the same time and I, I can remember Malcolm Cole saying uh, at one point in this because we were saying we don't know how the, um, the, the creature is going to turn out to be uh, the, the treasure and he said well what about if it credit cards and I, I think we kind of tried to work with that for a little while but that didn't work um, so it was like a writer's room, in a way. It, it was which a little bit. Which, for the bit. time, was not the norm. We, we certainly knew each other. Uh, we certainly met each other. We certainly chatted with each other. Um, you knew when Ben was in the building by a trail of half-drunk Coke cans that was left <laughs> around. This is Ben Aronovich. Uh, yes. Um, so we, we knew each other, we talked to each other, we, we, we chatted with each other. Um, I remember that f in... Um, in Dragonfire, at some point, yeah, there's, there's the, the kind of the, the, the milk bar, cantina type place. Um, at some point, somebody asks for a drink, and it must have been in rehearsal at the time, I guess, because the, the message had come back, can we have a different name for the drink, because this isn't quite exciting enough. And so we, we had like three Doctor Who scriptwriters there, <laughs> all going, what about this, what about that, what about that, what about that, going through the most improbable cocktail names before we ended up, and I'm pretty certain it ended up as a star fruit juice, as sounding vaguely intergalactic. Um, but also... But you had everybody, everybody on that. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, that brings me... It's interesting, because mm -hmm. we, we talk about this having talked over lunch, um, and uh, you very tentatively asked me what I thought was wrong with Dragonfire. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is, which and, is, and now is your chance. I've been very polite over lunch to tell me what you really well, think of no, it. But that's an interesting, the fact that you feel the need to ask that question. Um, and I am a lover of Doctor mm. Who, so... Um, 
But when I think about Dragonfire, interesting. If you ask me for my initial gut reaction mm. to it, apart from Edward Peel's brilliance and, oh, uh, and I love the backstory of his character, yeah. I think there's, there's a real emotional heart to it. Mm. But if you want me to be a doctor, and I go, what don't I like about mm. it? Um, for example, the the milkshake bar mm. strikes me as somebody, and I'm I'm a writer. I'm I'm lucky. I write for radio, mm. so. I'm never let down by the pictures. <laughs> you strike me that you wrote for the Star Wars Cantina, mm. and you got BBC television. <laughs> uh, and yeah. so I want—I wonder if that surprised you. Um, if if that is if that's just something that I'm looking at that actually doesn't bother mm. you at all. Um, but that that just seems to be to be an aspect of the story that, as a writer, I look at and go, the gap between what I would have written and what was realised mm. is massive. The gap between what you write and what is realised is always there. There is always a gap. Sometimes it works in your favour and you get something which is way better than you expected. An actor will bring something to a character that was only there embryonically in the writing and you think, oh, that's amazing. Or a director will realise the scene and give it life that, that, that was kind of beyond your own imagining. Um, and sometimes it, it works the other way, that it, it, it falls short of what you're hoping for. In that case, Dragonfire, I wasn't at all disappointed in it because um, that was the first thing I'd written for television. It was, it was the first thing I'd written that I'd been paid for. And there I was in Studio One, the largest purpose-built TV studio in the world and it's filled with my story. I couldn't have been happier. You know, my, my joy knew no bounds at that point. So anything they did was just amazing to me. Um, looking back at it, because I, I, I read the, the, the script yesterday, so I, re I remembered them for when we're talking about it. And the thing that struck me um, when I was reading Dragonfire was how much, how many echoes there, there are still in Dragonfire of the pyramid story. How much of it is still kind of slightly surreal. And that contrasts with the, the adventure story that's in there, the action-adventure. And I don't think it's impossible to, to combine both of those in, in a production, but they're so different from each other that there is a kind of a tension in the script pulling in different directions. Part of it wants to be a, a kind of a quirky, slightly surreal, almost goonish at times, um, adventure in the way that the goons had these little stories which were surreal and bizarre and things like that and the other part is, is wanting to be just a, a fast moving action adventure story and I, I think that made it difficult for the production team so I personally think that that's, that's the problem with Anyway, the script, the production, whatever, that there's this tension in it which isn't properly 
reconciled. And, and I think that contrasts with um, Fenric, where there are lots of things going on, but in a way they're all anchored to the same point, because that was one story, it stayed one story right from the beginning through to the end. Lots of things changed in it, but the, the core image of it was, was present right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I, I, was, I was interested to know what you made of a Dragonfire. I, I don't... I'm still proud of Dragonfire. Um, reading that script again, I, I thought, this is bloody good for, someone, for someone's first script. Oh, and there are, there are bits in this which, even without wonderful performances from, from Eddie and people, there are bits in the, just the way some of these scenes are written. They're really, really good. Um, well, they're to, to my mind. They're I mean, where, where does something... And I don't think you'd get it in modern Doctor Who. Um, and I love modern Doctor Who, but it's a compliment when I say this mm. to you, is uh, that scene between the Doctor and the Guard. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, is it... Um, uh, Chris McDonald, isn't it? Yes. Uh, where, where he quotes from the Doctor Who, the unfolding text. Yes. And it's a brilliant piece of comedy. Yeah. But it's actually totally plausible as well. Uh, and it's yeah. a lovely bit of texture. Mm. Um, but, th- but that's one of the things which pulls towards the, the quirky and bizarre rather than the action-adventure. You know, if, if, if we were to do that scene as, as a pure action-adventure, the way the Doctor would distract the guard would be totally different uh, rather than going straight in and saying something like, do you, do you have any particular theological beliefs or whatever mm. it is he, he starts off with? Um, which wrong foots everybody except, funnily enough, the guard himself. Of course. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, it's a who's, pullback, who's been yeah. waiting for someone to ask him this question. Yeah. <laughs> so it's... Uh, it, it has... It has some moments like that which I, I think have a deftness to them which surprise me. Mm. I'm surprised that my young self was able to do that. And it also has some scenes where, even when I was reading it yesterday, I kind of stopped reading for a moment just to kind of take it in. So scenes like um, uh, when Cain is, is tempting... Um, um, Ace with the Ace, coin. With, great yeah, with the scene. coin. Yeah. Uh, and also when he's kind of challenging Bellage and and her her bitterness, her, bitterness, her regret. Uh, and there's the scenes with the with the sculptor, which you, I think that's one instance where getting the the, the, the kind of the the oddballness and the action adventure actually work together, because. I don't think that's the sculptor pulls away from the action adventure. It simply totally wrong-foots you, and you you don't expect it. In telling an action adventure story, um, all your characters have a background. Mm, absolutely. In some ways, you don't need to do as much exposition because the the trajectory of a character's story makes one, once the actor knows what's happening. Everything is then consistent with that, with their personal 
character's story. So they can then they, they don't need to say in the scene, you know, what's my motivation, as it were, because they, they know what it is. And they can then give a better performance, a more rounded performance, a more layered performance in a scene where that doesn't it's not mentioned at all. But to be honest, I don't know any other way of writing. The, the characters are always going to demand that I that I, I take the time to understand them. And that was something that Andrew said years ago, that he, he said it fascinated him how different write, you know, the, the different writers would work differently. And the example he gave, he said, Does it, if I were to come up with a story problem, Ian would solve it with characters, Ben would solve it with amazing action. And I look at Ben's writing and I think, oh, I wish I could write like Ben can. Uh, but, you know, I can write, I can write character. Mm. Uh, I, I, every character does have every a, a, a life of their absolutely. own. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And that's especially true in, in Fenric where I think, and unless they are literally a non-speaking part who wanders around doing nothing, I can't off the top of my head think of a single character in um, Fenric who doesn't and didn't have a story that, they were act- that was actually developing as part of what they were doing there. Sure. And that I, I, I knew who they were, where they came from, I mean, I, they, they always say when, uh, you know, if you, if you want to write, so write a biography of the character. I've never done that. Uh, I think that's, that's a bit pointless. But I, I've always known, in the context of the story they were in, what, what they were bringing to that. Sure. Where they were coming from in that respect and where, where, they, where they needed to go, where they wanted to go. Um, in, in that story. I mean, Miss Hardacre doesn't have much to do in uh, Fenric, but but she absolutely has a backstory there. You know but, everything about yeah, her. I mean, she wouldn't behave the way she behaved. She wouldn't treat those two girls the way she treats them if she didn't have a history of her own at Maiden's Point. Um, so, I, I don't know any other way of writing. Okay, well, that's the that's the you know, important, clever stuff. Uh, the, nom- <laughs> the, the nomenclature is it... Uh, well, I... Because th- I, I think your stories also have a very interesting... And I, and I think it's all part of telling a story. Um, I, I, I remember Terry, you know, always being excited by Terry Nation stories because mm. he called his characters things like Dortmund, which right. is obviously, you know, well-versed in sort of World War II drama or whatever. Yes. Um, he was just a guy, yeah. but it sounded <laughs> exciting. Yeah. And your name... I mean, Dragonfire... Almost everybody's named after a, a famous <laughs> film, but it actually gives it Bellage. That's a yeah. great name, Krakauer. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, there's a really interesting um, template of, of language just mm. in the names. Uh, absolutely. You, you have to get the right name for a character. Uh, and even now, stealing names from. Podovkin. Yes. <laughs> well, I was. Uh, in, and that's just a guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was stealing a lot of. In Dragonfire, I was dealing mostly from um, film directors, film theoreticians, um, but you know, there's 101 of them, so it, you know, pick the ones which give the character a story. Yes, no one was G- called Michael the... Winner. Winner. Yes. Well, the right character that, that would that would have worked for. 
Um, but we had tremendous difficulty with Cain because... Was he called, was he called Hess originally? He was called Hess originally um, because I liked the, the sibilance mm. in that. Um, and uh, John Nathan Turner uh, eventually... I mean, he stayed as Hess for quite a long time. But eventually he said we couldn't use Hess because of... Um, the Nazi war criminal who was the sole prisoner in Spandau prison of course. at the time. Yeah. Um, and he was worried that he might sue us for defamation of character. <laughs> at which point I pointed out he's a convicted Nazi criminal. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't run a freezer centre in space. <laughs> I don't think he has much character to defame. <laughs> so um, it was Hark for a little bit with a double A. OK. But... Oh, and this, yeah, and here's the rub. Because the, the scripts had been typed, so it had to be a four-character name so that it could be tipexed out, because we, you know, we didn't have word processing. Do you know what, I almost days. didn't ask you that question, mm. because as somebody that writes now, mm. I go back to the old document and I cut and paste stuff. Yeah. You have to retype everything. And the BBC did. I'd written it on a word processor, but the, the, the BBC... The, my script then went to kind of the typing pool uh, and retyped it. So these the, the scripts have been typed. Um, so what we would be doing would be tipexing out one name and overtyping with another name, <laughs> rather than having to retype the That's whole script. So That's it, brilliant. So it had to be a, fo- <laughs> a four-character name. So it was Hark first with a double A, which I quite liked because it looks kind of I don't know. It, it says something about the character. Uh, this this double A, but then I re- realised, or maybe Andrew pointed out to me, that this wasn't going to work on television unless people bothered to read the credits. Um, actually, he would have probably had it on the name badge on his uniform. But there was a coffee at the time as well called Cafe Hark, wasn't there? Was there? It was a de- it was a decaffeinated maybe, coffee. Well, maybe that was another reason for losing. But anyway, th- I, I I thought about it again, um, and probably ransacked my, my memory of films again and, and came up with Kane, which in the end, in fact, I think as soon as I thought of Kane, I thought, actually, this is the perfect name for him because it doesn't sound like a villain. It's, But on the other hand, there's something just a little bit off-kilter about it. it it's got a hard K. It's, it's, it's got this hard consonant at the start, which which makes, makes it not too surprising that the character is kind of abandoned, as it were, but, but is not um, a pantomime villain. So that, that was where I came from. Well, and very interesting in, the, in this conversation, before we uh, go on to February, mm. um, is that you've mentioned both uh, John Nathan Turner and Andrew Cartmel. Mm. Who, who have largely told the history of the latter years of Doctor Who because yeah. they're available to us. Well, um, John isn't. Well, John sadly isn't now, but, but he was very much the focus mm. for, for a lot of yeah. uh, the discussion of the latter but, years But I think that's Who. why Andrew's had a lot more kind of exposure recently because mm. I think um, the, you know, the tradition would be that the producer would speak about yeah. old series... But because John isn't around to speak, Andrew is the only person 
who knows what went on for those three years in the production office. Well, apart from Kate, who was John's Kate's secretary. Theory, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, was, it was John and Andrew who kind of crafted the trajectory of, of, the, of the seasons. So it was, Andrew's the only person now who knows what, what really happened. Well, but it's all a matter of perspective, so tell me about those two gentlemen from, from your perspective and your experience. Oh dear. Um, I mean, John gets yeah. a hard time, I think, in the history of Doctor Who. Yes, um, I, I'm, I'm on the other side. Um, I'm very loyal to both of them, in the sense that both of them, I feel, have earned my loyalty. Uh, I admire both of them hugely. Uh, Andrew is still a good friend. Uh, John, I think, was a very, very talented producer. I'm bitterly sorry that um, he's died. I'm bitterly sorry that he died the way he did. Um, it was kind of a, tra a trajectory that reached its conclusion. Um, I think the greatest tragedy of that is that the BBC never worked out what to do with him. That he was... This actually comes from Stephen. Um, he, so he used kind of this phrase. Um, he was one of the few producers the BBC had who really had the popular touch. He was one of the few producers who would actually watch Coronation Street because he loved Coronation Street, not because he felt he ought to be checking up on what everybody else was doing. He was as a kind of a research exercise. Um, I think it's, it, it's such a tragedy that the BBC never found another project for him to work on because he was an incredibly talented producer. Um, I learned most of what I know about producing from John, um, from, from Fenwick, um, so when we were shooting Fenwick. So, so therefore, what, say, was his, Im what was his impact on your scripts then, to give us an idea of how he was as a producer? He... He had a, a very good sense he had, he had, well, he had a very good sense of, of the popular audience, of the, the, the large audience. Um, he knew, he understood stories. He didn't pretend to write stories. He wasn't a producer who interfered a lot. But if something wasn't going to work, he would say, that's not going to work. He would tell Andrew, no, that seems not going to work, that seems not going to work, those lines, can you change those lines? Um, which is why the, um, the the pyramid story, although it had a lot of good stuff in it, and it was a good story in itself, it came back with a lot of scenes crossed out because John knew that the, those wouldn't work. Uh, it, it did have a really good sense of popular television. He knew he was smart enough to put the kind of stars in it as in guest roles because he he knew that that would get an audience he understood that the american and um, australian audiences were important and 
would go to Australia, America, to, to kind of talk with fans there. He, I think without John, the show would have been cancelled earlier. And it was only the fact that John kind of kept going. I, I don't think he got everything right. But I think a lot of the criticisms of him, I mean, say, kind of casting stars and things like that, I actually don't think those were mistakes. They may jar with people who kind of love Doctor Who and love it as SF and adventure and things like that. But in terms of attracting the public's attention and um, you know, getting people to watch the programme, which in a way made it difficult for the BBC to cancel it, it, it did what, what John wanted it to do. It, it just kind of raised the profile of the show. And I think behind the scenes, just as a producer, he was extremely good at um, allocating resources, at um, getting directors. Um, I mean, the, the, the budget for Doctor Who was minimal, and yet John would make it go twice as far as you would expect it to go. Um, so, I, I, I have... I have respect and I have beyond respect for John. I, I think he, if if he gets kind of a bad rap still, I don't know if he does or not, but if he still gets a bad rap, I think that's gro grossly unfair that he, he did a lot for that programme and kept it going um, longer than the BBC wanted it to go on for. Um, he was also... I was going to say he's great fun to work with. He had two sides to him. He could be waspish um, if he was under a lot of pressure, uh, which I think he... Oh, that's the other thing. He, he protected the programme, you know, those of us working on the programme. He completely protected us from the pressure that was coming down on him from higher up in the BBC, uh, the, the dislike of the programme, the, the key, complete incomprehension of the programme. He protected us from that completely. Um, but I think there were times when he was under pressure and uh, he could snap sometimes then. But, you know, it, it was over in a moment and, you know, he, he, was, he was really a, a, a lovely bloke. Well, it's interesting. And, I, I mean, I realise we're quite far into the interview, uh, so <laughs> do tell me... Should, if, should I if talk I, faster? <laughs> no, if I, no, if I'm taking up too much of your time, no, it's, it's not mine. Um, is that, but I think this is fascinating. Um, there are there are certain schools of thought that say Doctor Who needed to be cancelled to come back in the way that it did when Russell T Davis brought it back mm. in 2005. Um, but, you know, you're talking about a period in the show's history when there was some great work being done. Mm, and as absolutely. you say, it was unloved by the BBC. Yeah. Um, so can you be objective about whether it needed to go away or was that a wasted opportunity? Could Doctor mm. have actually hung on in there? Mm, it's difficult because there, there are two sides to that. Um, on the one hand, I think if we'd had another season or two, I, I think we were just getting into our stride as, as writers. Uh, I think Andrew was just getting into his stride. If we'd had another season or two, we could have actually written some really, really, really good stuff. On the other hand, 
the ratings hadn't demonstrated that yet. Uh, certainly once the BBC put us opposite Coronation Street, starting five minutes after Coronation Street, when nobody had video recorders, uh, that was that was a bit of an uphill struggle to, to get an audience for there. I think it's true to say that Fenric played to the lowest ever audience in the entire history of Doctor Who from 1963 to the present. And I don't think Fenric was that bad a programme. Um, but on the other hand, I think, the, I think the BBC had a problem with the programme in that I think the programme had become too big and th there was a lot of a lot of kind of angst coming the BBC's way about how it should do this with Doctor Who and do that with Doctor Who and do the other and, and I think the BBC you can't have a situation where one programme is bigger than the production company really uh, so I think from the BBC's point of view we, we weren't getting the ratings yet and they were getting a lot of aggro about sort Doctor Who out and they just thought put it out of its misery and save ourselves a lot of grief having said that if it had been cancelled is a thought experiment for you if it had been cancelled three years earlier do you think it would have come back ever? Well, it's interesting because there are there are aspects of that last couple of seasons that yeah. are, I think, mirrored in the season when it came back. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's like it had been there underground, and then it just re-emerged in a different format with different players, different scripts. Yeah. But but some of the directions which which we'd started taking it in. Proved to be well, yeah, fruitful directions. Survival is quite like Russell T. Davis's, you know, um, suburban mm. Doctor Who. Yeah, and and in a way, I think what we were doing was we were taking we were taking it back to its roots and trying to take away a lot of the kind of the myth that that had accumulated around the Doctor and the Time Lords and things like that. And Andrew really wanted to to kind of create another level uh, beneath uh, the Doctor being a Time Lord, simply to get rid of that baggage. Um, I, and, and I know that people have said to me that um, Rose was very much in the model of Ace. Ace yeah. and, and did I feel that Ace, that Rose was a copy of Ace and I said, well, no, not at all because, you know, Ace was a retread of Barbara and Vicky and all those companions he had back in the 60s who were from Earth, from London, of that period, kind of thing. They, they were they were the, the kind of the grounding to the Doctor's extraterrestrialism mm. and they were very much of, of the time Ace was of her time. I know some people didn't like her because they didn't like her being a, a young teenager in the, the, the standard language she used, but um, I think that's a, just a kind of a question of taste. But then Rose was, I think, going back to what works, which is if, if you have a man from outer space, then pair him with 
a young woman from the present day uh, who's socially recognisable. So I, it may well have come back even if it stopped three years earlier, but I, I think it was heading in a direction which, which is recognisable uh, as, as having been a you know, positive, a fruitful direction mm. when, when Russell T Davis came back with it and was doing similar things and, and making it work. So tell me about Andrew then, your script editor, because uh, I mean I Andrew. think he, 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 he is the umbrella over that area, yes. isn't he? Yes. Stylistically. It, it, it was he who wanted... Well, I think John was open to a new idea, a new style, and Andrew had the, the ideas for the new style. He's the one who... He knows SF. Uh, he knows it backwards. He knows genre writing backwards. He's an exceptionally good writer himself. Uh, he's very supportive of writers. Um, he's also perfectionist, but in a very supportive way. Uh, it doesn't let you get away with something which he doesn't think works, but he will then support you in finding uh, another way, uh, and it will be very encouraging and, and all that. Which is why I was saying that you know he was saying the centre is held, the centre is held. Um, you know he was, he was trying to kind of keep my faith in the project, whereas I was the, the realist who was saying it hasn't held at all. Forget it, Andrew. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> New story we need. And I did sometimes think, and I think I, I joked with him once uh, about we were in the wrong roles because um, whichever one of the stories it was, he, he would uh, be saying, well, you, you could always shift to so-and-so, or, or what about so-and-so? And I'd be saying, Andrew, we've got to do this in 7 to 10 sets and 25% location shooting. We've run out of sets. We don't have any more sets. We can't go anywhere else. And so I was talking like a script editor and he was talking like a, a, a writer <laughs> who, whose imagination knew no bounds. Uh, he's... Well, we're still friends. What more can I say? We, we still meet up, we still chat. Um, he's, he's, he was a great writer. And I told you that you know, I'd read a script of his without ever having known who he was. And amidst the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scripts I read, um, that was one that I thought, this is good, this writer's good, uh, and was, was you know, trying to get him known elsewhere in the BBC. So I think he's a, a stunningly good writer and um, a fine man at the same time. Now, Ian's been very interesting in his approach to nominating a charity and there are various possibilities based on what he has requested. And I don't want to sort of spoil it because he gives his reasons at the end of the interview, which will be at the climax of part three. So for now, uh, may I suggest evidenceaction.org, which counts um, as part of what he suggested. Evidenceaction.org, all one word, evidenceaction.org. If you want to wait for part three, um, because he suggests a way that you can sort of choose the one that you want. But here is just one of the charities that uh, that fits Ian's remit, um, which, as I say, is an interesting and educational um, choice. Um, more from Ian the next time. As I say, this is a three-part interview. He was very interesting, and I didn't want to cut any of it out. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Toby Haydock, um, and... Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, there'll be more of this this time next week. Cheers, bye.
coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Monsters of Gokroth. Max, now it's curfew, you have to get inside. I don't have to do anything. I know, this is no good. Everyone huddled in the village hall like animals, but people don't feel safe in their own beds. Let me go. This is for your own good. Who are you? Just a visitor, passing through. Another stranger. I suppose I must be. Stay back! I'll try and help you. And the others. The ones in the forest. Give them back what they've lost. Resher, on the gate. He says there was a stranger asking for you late last night. What? He came to answer the call. He came from the stars. You almost shot the son of your head woman. You'll be off a Christmas card list if you fire again. Uh, my name is Varon. Uh, you have a problem with monsters, and I am quite the expert. <laughs> Doctor. They're probably much more scared of us than we are of them. I don't think that's actually true. Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Big finish. We love stories. I'm just not sure. It's part of me, after all. Then you need to decide if you can live with that. <laughs> <laughs>